Welcome back, everyone. I am Alessio Bricca, a postdoc in the Mobilize project, and this is part two of the Mobilize podcast with Professor Rod Taylor. The focus of this podcast is to better understand how to implement in clinical practice alternative delivery modes to supervise the center-based exercise for cardiac rehabilitation. And who better than Professor Rod Taylor can tell us how to do it. So Rod, welcome back. And how did you implement home-based exercise in Scotland? Yeah, well, it's been very, as I said at the outset, you know, we're living in strange times. And of course, with the pandemic, um, many of those impacts sadly are negative because, you know, we're, we're having to socially isolate and we're having to be very careful about the way in which we behave. But one of the unintended benefits of that is that it has really, I think, forced the NHS in the UK, and I suspect the same is true in Denmark, to think innovatively about the way that we provide services. What, what we've been forced to do is to, is to take patients out of a hospital setting, because if you have heart failure, for instance, you're at very high risk of um, being infected. And if you are infected, sadly, maybe even of mortality. So we have to shield these patients and we have to socially distance them. And of course, maintaining their healthy behaviors in their home-based setting is therefore the obvious solution. Now, again, let's not underestimate that that's not an easy thing to implement but if we say to the health service as we have been fortunate enough reach hf we did the trial the trial completed about 18 months ago and and then covid arrived and and it almost arrived at exactly the right point in our implementation curve it's a strange way to put it but when we would have normally leveraged, I think, with the NHS, we would have had a lot of pushback to say, oh, Professor Taylor, we've got a very successful program of centre-based rehabilitation already. Why do we need to replace this with a home-based program? Whereas we're having the opposite conversation now, because centre-based programs are not active at all in UK at least at this time, they may be when we start to relax and we can bring patients in. So we've had a huge um, demand on our training programs. So we now run a, a two-day monthly program to train cardiac rehabilitation staff on how to deliver the REACH HF intervention. It's a two-day web program. Um, it was delivered face-to-face -face over three days, but again, with COVID, we've repurposed that. And uh, for the last, I think, eight months, those monthly programs have been overly subscribed from around the country. And, and these are cardiac rehabilitationists who want to learn how to deliver effectively home-based programs and then use the REACH HF intervention for their patients. So I, th I think, again, you know, timing has been rather fortunate for us. And I hope the world does go back to normal again with uh, the, the pandemic, but I think it's helped us accelerate our implementation. Um, yeah, as I've explained. Yeah, congratulations, because that's, that's very important. I think what 
what we all would like, as, as we said before, is that these, these patients get the best treatment possible. And uh, this seems to be a very good opportunity, particularly during this, this pandemic. I have another question related to um, the safety of exercise performed at home. Uh, and that's because when talking to patients uh, that, for example, have never exercised before, one of their first concern is that, uh, uh, but is it safe? What if I injure myself uh, or what if I feel pain in my muscles uh, after an exercise session? So I wonder how you take that uh, into account into, into your trial. So I think a couple of things to say on that, Alicia. So, so one is... We, we have very good evidence overall that in people with heart disease, exercise is a safe thing to do. I, I can't remember the exact data. I, a figure that comes to mind, and I shouldn't quote numbers that I'm not sure about, but I think it's one in 100,000 exercising hours is the kind of rate at which you would expect a serious adverse event. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of exposure for a small number of events. So we know that generally, um, but of course, patients don't know that. So, and, and also caregivers don't know that. So one of the, the key things as you, you suggest that we often need to do is to educate the patient that in the long-term exercise is a highly safe activity for them to do. And in fact, they will reduce their risk of future adverse events. But of course, that's not to say that while they're exercising, we need to take care. So the way that we classically do that with our home-based exercises through a very detailed baseline assessment of their functional status, that would normally include an assessment of their functional capacity. Now, again, we'll come back to it if we've got some time, but in COVID, that's very difficult. How do you assess somebody over a Zoom call like we have now in, of their functional capacity? We, we can't do an incremental shuttle walk. We can't do a maximal exercise test on you. Um, so the only way we can do that is to ask you some questions such as, Alicio, can you walk up a set of stairs without getting breathless? Um, if you are able to walk, how many um, meters are you able to walk before you have chest pain? So we can begin to indirectly derive somebody's functional capacity narratively. But normally we would want to do that through an exercise test. I think we would agree. And then using classic exercise physiology principles, we would then set an intensity that would be appropriate for that patient. And again, the, the intensity um, of exercise, the model of exercise for a cardiac patient isn't that diff different to public health. So we're looking at exercising three to five times a week at traditionally 20 to 40 minutes at an intensity of somewhere around 60 to 85% of heart rate max or equivalent such as VO2 max, if we have that data. And, and we know again, if we set the intensity appropriately, we can maintain the safety of exercise too. So, so yeah, that, that would be the way that we would approach safety. And again, just to, to, to evidence that in our trial, we asked patients how many of you had serious adverse events um, 
and we had very, very few. If people did have an adverse event, it was a hospitalization associated with a heart failure. And that tended to happen more in the control group than in the exercise group. And we did see a fairly low level of musculoskeletal problems. And I'll be honest, that was quite surprising for us because as we may talk about, heart failure patients are multimorbid. And, um, you know, we did expect we could see some quite common musculoskeletal injuries, but maybe because we kept the intensity low, that wasn't the case. Yeah, yeah, very good. And uh, uh, I think it's very important, your message that uh, uh, exercise is safe and uh, uh, that we also tell patients that because we take it for granted uh, as researchers, but patients actually need to know that uh, as well. With and, different... and their families. And, and their, their families. families. Yeah. Because again, I think, you know, if when I come to have my heart disease, and sadly, I, I probably will, you will need to convince Mrs. Taylor, well, you won't, because she's been watching my research activity, hopefully over the last 10 years or so. Uh, but Typically, you will need to convince families because they are they, they are often more worried than the patients, and we found this often with, with caregivers that the, the, the so-called cotton wool syndrome. They want to keep you protected, and actually, they're very worried about their partner exercising. And of course, they they need to encourage their partner to exercise, not the opposite. So that education for families is particularly important, I think, Alicia. Do you also encourage caregivers to exercise together with uh, with the patients uh, in in your in your sessions? Yeah, Just it's been really interesting. Yeah, no, no, no. It's a great it's a great question, Alessio. And and I'll be honest that it's a been an it's been a new area for me the involvement of caregivers. So, one of our earlier researchers did a qualitative study. And again, you know, as a statistician, I tend to think in hard numbers. But of course, when you talk to patients and their families, you learn a lot of things we don't get from the hard numbers. And one of the things we very quickly realized was with some of these comments that caregivers have perceptions about their patients that may not be accurate, such as overprotection. Also, caregivers are very important in terms of changing behavior. So when we designed the REACH HF intervention, we decided that the intervention would be delivered as a dyad. So in other words, it's not just delivering the intervention to you, the patient, but it's also to your partner. And we have a separate manual that the caregiver follows while the patient is following their manual. And we measured outcomes in the caregivers in the trial as well. But a couple of things to say on that. So one is not every patient <clears throat> has a partner who's comfortable to be called a caregiver. Mm -hmm. So ca caregiving comes with a, with a particular piece of stigma, I think. So although we might have a partner, so I'll take the example of my wife. If I said to my wife, are you my caregiver? She may say no. Um, I'm his wife, but I'm not here to care for him. <laughs> He's old enough to do that himself. Now, that may change over time, but you can see my point. So when we ask patients in the trial, do you have a caregiver? Not in every case. Maybe two out of three patients had some form of caregiver, either their, their wife or their partner, 
or a member of their family or a close friend. So that's one phenomena. And, and then I think the second phenomena is that if you do involve the caregiver, you can get them also improving their health outcomes by participating in exercise. And one of the things, again, that we found in the trial is that if you are a caregiver, particularly for a very severe heart failure patient, you often have a lot of burden as, as a caregiver. And we showed in the trial that we can actually reduce that perception of burden by educating the caregiver and having the caregiver looking after themselves more. Because again, often if you are a caregiver, particularly for a very severe patient who may, for instance, be close to end of life, which can happen with heart failure, then as a caregiver, you're spending your life looking after them rather than yourself. And that will be to the detriment of your own health. So again, it's maybe for another podcast, but I think there's a very interesting issue about should we be taking care of caregivers for people with long-term conditions in a much more thoughtful way because I, I suspect that a lot of our care that we get particularly near the end of our lives doesn't come from the health service or social services but comes from unpaid carers who are our nearest and dearest and we need to take care of them too but as I say maybe that's a theme for another discussion. That, that's very interesting and for sure we are interested in talking to you about that more um, and what I can imagine <clears throat> is that the burden uh, of the, the caregivers it's it's even higher potentially when people have uh, multiple chronic conditions or or multimorbidity Mm-hmm. And uh, you are um, in a phase where you're about to, to perform a new study uh, on, on multimorbidity, right? And that's, I guess, also because many people with, uh, with heart failure or, or chronic heart diseases have uh, lived with other chronic conditions such as depression or diabetes. Uh, yeah. Could you tell us a bit about uh, that and what is about to happen? Sure. Yeah, so we're moving into a very exciting new phase. And, and, and indeed, I need to, I think, also acknowledge the how nice it's been to be able to collaborate with the mobilized collaboration, too, because I think through talking to Sorn and being a member of your advisory group, it helped me to see a very important concept, which is a rather obvious one, but let's just state it, which is that, you know, we, we treat the patient not the condition. So what do I mean by that? So if you're a patient with heart failure, as you say, okay, you have a diagnosis of heart failure, but as a person, you may have many other conditions. And indeed, if I may take the liberty of citing your recent, and congratulations, your systematic review of interventions for multimorbidity, one of the trials you chose was HF Action. So this is the largest multi-center trial of exercise-based rehabilitation for people with heart failure. And you included that study because if you looked at their table one, as you did, not only did they present with heart failure, but they presented sadly with many long-term conditions. Often uh, they had COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. They may have arthritis, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. 
So it's almost an, an obvious thing, but interestingly, in the cardiac rehabilitation field, we've all we've we've traditionally had what we call a single indication type approach. So if you have a heart attack, I treat you for your heart attack. If you have um, a stent put in your chest to improve your circulation in your heart, I'll I'll treat you for that. If you have heart failure, I'll treat you for that. But of course, we should be treating the whole patient. So our new program called PERFORM, um, and I'm pleased to say the National Institute of Health Research in UK has just funded our program. And this is a program that will be co-led by myself and a, another investigator in UK called Professor Sally Singh, based in Leicester. We have been given the funding to begin next year, a four-year program of research to try to address the question of, can we develop a pragmatic intervention specifically targeting people with multimorbidity? In other words, two or more long-term conditions and try to change the current paradigm of rehabilitation. So again, just to state the current paradigm is if you have specific cardiac indications or pulmonary indications, you receive rehabilitation. We want to turn that in its head and say, what cluster of long-term conditions, first of all, put you at risk, and then let's target those clusters of multimorbidity and generate an efficacious and safe program that we can provide to those individuals going forward. Again, I think very similar to the mobilized program, um, but maybe taking it slightly differently where we'll, I think we're going to begin by looking at these clusters of diseases initially to try to identify where the highest areas of unmet need might be. And as I say, we're very excited about this program and we hope to begin in the new year, uh, 2022. Fantastic. And uh, thanks for citing our research in Mobilize. Uh, it's definitely a pleasure to have you on the advisory board and uh, we are learning a, a lot from you. And uh, I think what, uh, what the two programs to Mobilize and Perform have in common is that uh, we all want to improve the quality of life of people living with multiple chronic conditions by providing uh, uh, treatment options that, that they like, uh, they accept and uh, they are safe and beneficial. So and it, it's, it's very uh, reassuring to hear that there are other people in the world uh, trying to achieve uh, uh, similar goals. Yeah, yeah. We are now close to the end of the podcast. If it's okay with you, I would like you to say maybe two or three uh, take-home messages about exercise uh, or home exercise uh, uh, home-based exercise for people with, uh, with chronic conditions, particularly with uh, uh, heart failure, and uh, uh, one or two messages for, for researchers. So if a patient has heart failure and would like to, to exercise at home, what should he or, or she do? Okay, I think it's really important, again, just to emphasize that home-based exercise is not a panacea. It's not for everybody. Some people still do get motivated by group-based programs. 
and therefore centre-based programmes. So I think a key starting point for me is to try to work out what an individual patient's preferences might be. And we don't often do that. We, we, we give people choice, but actually there's one thing we're offering them. So in UK, I'm trying to get healthcare providers to provide the, either the option of centre or home. And then the patient, based on their preference, decides and even may combine them in a hybrid way. But my, my, my theory is, is that if we give option, we're more likely to get long-term adherence. So that's point one. <laughs> so point two is then I think it is very important that patients do do their programs, um, their, their exercise alongside existing experts in the field. And, and I don't mean these as research experts, I mean them as clinical experts. So if for instance, you're in Glasgow, um, I would be suggesting that you contact through your physician, your local rehabilitation programs. And we're very fortunate that we have a number of those in the city. I think there's four or five programs. And it, for the reason you said, it would be safe and efficacious not to go doing these exercises yourself. Okay, that's my, what your long-term goal might be, but initially get yourself signed up for a program. Um, and try to encourage your healthcare professional, your general practitioner, your cardiologist to make that referral on your behalf. I think you asked me for two things, so yes, they would yes, be my two. Yes, very good. And what about for researchers? What researchers uh, should do better in the future when doing uh, exercise trials? Yeah, so I... I, I could go on forever in this one because, of course, as a researcher, I'm always beating myself up that my next trial should be better than my, my last one. But I, I think there are a couple of challenges, let's say, specifically in our field, Alicio. So let me just rehearse what are the ones that come to mind. So I think one of the, the challenges we have in our field of exercise-based interventions is what I would call fidelity. So I think you earlier on said that cardiac rehabilitation is a, is a complex intervention. And we know from the literature around complex interventions that we, we need to um, understand better how we deliver complex interventions using methods such as fidelity assessments. So in other words, it's, it's not just enough to say, this was the exercise prescription we gave the patient. We need to know, so for instance, in my case, did the, the person supporting the patient, were they supporting them well? And then did the patient comply? And actually, again, that sounds very straightforward, but I think as you and I know, measuring fidelity and adherence to interventions and trials is not easy, but it is important. Yes. Um, but so... So that's one um, challenge. And then I think the other challenge is then the, the, the challenge of, uh, of outcomes. So I think, you know, you and I have been comfortable to talk about, for instance, quality of life as a relevant outcome for our, our trials. But again, I think it's interesting when you talk to clinicians, <laughs> And the world is changing, but if you were to talk to cardiologists, so again, my problem, 
convincing cardiologists that rehabilitation is a good thing, they often take evidence from hard outcomes such as death or hospitalization. So if I say to them, well, you should be referring your patients to rehabilitation, they say, ah, but you have no evidence to show definitively that these patients are reduced in their mortality or their hospitalization. Whereas I would say to them, well, look, we, we ought to be thinking about what is the appropriate outcome for this patient. And they're taking their drugs to lengthen their life, but they're taking their exercise to improve the quality of those additional years. So that's a long way to say we need, I think, to be measuring patient-related outcomes better and then communicating that as an outcome of value, not only to patients, but to clinical uh, decision makers um, in making these interventions available. Thank you, Rod, for joining us in this podcast. I can tell you that I've learned a lot about home-based exercise by talking to you. And I hope you all have enjoyed listening to this podcast. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you very much, Alicio. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.